Well, we're in Revelation chapter 2 again, and we'll begin reading with verse 18. This is the longest letter of the seven to the church at Thyatira. Revelation 2, verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with the death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. The seven churches that we're considering in these two chapters of Revelation, were literal historical churches uh, that existed in the first century. But at the same time, they're representative of all kinds of churches that have existed all throughout church history and even exist today. And so while we look at these uh, letters that Jesus had written to the churches in the first century, let's not get so caught up in what he says to them that we miss the application that he has for us. Because the words that Jesus said to them were direct and they were pointed when they were originally read. Uh, But they're also applicable even today in the church. Thyatira is the fourth church that we've considered. And by this point in the study, you should be able to see a pattern starting to form. You see, two of the seven churches, one we've already looked at, Smyrna and Philadelphia, these two churches received no condemnation from Jesus. He has nothing critical to say to Smyrna or Philadelphia. He only commends them. He only gives them comfort for the things that they're enduring. But the other five churches receive significant criticism from the Lord. And the pattern that we see is this, is that the positive things that Christ says about each church seems to be getting shorter as we go. The the good things that he sees in them seems to be getting fewer as we go along. And the sections of criticism, the negative things, seem to be getting worse and longer. It's as if there's a progression in the way that churches deal with sin. What was Ephesus' problem? They had left their first love. 
They were a loveless church. Pergamus's condemnation was that they had compromised. They were doing some of the right things, but they were starting to let sin creep into their midst. Thyatira's condemnation, as we see, is that they're just corrupt. And it's as if there's a progression here that a church that has lost its first love and does not repent, does not remedy the situation at that point, will lead itself to the point where sin begins to creep in and they start to compromise. If you're not emphasizing love for Christ and love for one another, sin begins to take a hold. And when you come to that stage and sin begins to creep in, if it's not dealt with at the stage of compromise, it leads to all-out corruption. And sin becomes a prevalent thing in the church. Notice how Jesus introduces himself in his words to this church in verse 18. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now, just like all the other descriptions we've seen so far, he's taking from the revelation that John saw back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Verse 15, His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Just focusing on those two descriptions he gives to Thyatira, his eyes were like a flame of fire. That speaks of Christ's omnipresence. That is, he is everywhere all at once. There is no place where you can escape his presence. He is in all places. He sees all things. That description of eyes of fire makes us think of a a burning look. Hebrews 4 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There is no thing that goes on in your life or in your family or in your job or in any sphere that Christ is not aware of it. That his eyes do not see what's going on in your life or in mine. Now, as we've talked about before, his omnipresence and his burning look, if you will, it's a comfort to his people. To know that in every situation, every circumstance, no matter how hard things may seem in the moment, to know that he sees you, to know that he's with you. That's a comfort. But those same eyes that see all things and are a comfort to his people are a terror to those who are living in sin. If you have sin in your life and you're living in ways that are displeasing to God, ways that would bring shame, know that Christ sees those things as well with his eyes of fire. But then he says he has feet like fine brass. Feet like fine brass. And I think that simply speaks of his triumph over his enemies. That messianic psalm, Psalm 110, begins this way. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. To Jesus, when he comes in judgment and he comes to reign over the earth, his enemies will be nothing more significant than a place to prop up his feet. That's the power that he has and that he will come with in judgment. He has feet like fine brass. Notice here his commendation of the church at Thyatira. He doesn't jump straight into the criticism. He does speak well of some things. He says in verse 19, I know your works. Love, service, faith, 
and your patience or your endurance. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now it would seem that what Ephesus lacked, Thyatira lived. You know, they did a lot of works, but they were lacking in the area of love. But what is the first work that Jesus commends in Thyatira? Love. They loved Christ. They were living a life of love to one another. And they had love and their works were increasing. It wasn't that they worked hard and labored for a while and then they, they got stale and things seemed to slide and they weren't working quite as hard as they used to. They weren't taking advantage of ministry opportunities like they once did. No, their works are increasing. He says your, your last works, the latest ones, are more even than the first ones you were doing when you were most passionate. So they're loving one another. They're serving. They're doing the work that they seem to be uh, called to. What's the problem? What's the problem? The problem is that even though they seem to be loving Christ and loving one another, and though they're growing in their work for God, they have become corrupt in their refusal to deal with sin. They've become corrupt in their refusal to deal with sin. Whereas in Pergamos, as we saw last week, sin was creeping in through some of the members of the congregation. In Thyatira, there's no concealing it. Sin is present, it's visible, and it is undealt with. And so as we look at this, I want us to think about this question. What does this look like? What did it look like for Thyatira to be a corrupt church? And then applying it to today, what are some characteristics that would identify a corrupt church? And I think the text itself gives us at least four characteristics. So let me mention four things. What does it look like to see a corrupt church? The first is simply this. Sin is tolerated. Sin is tolerated. Verse 10, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And the key to that is in that word, allows. It's not that just someone was sinning, but they were permitting it. They were tolerating it. Now, Thyatira as a city was pretty insignificant. There wasn't anything very important about Thyatira historically. They were known for their trade guilds. There were a lot of people who, who, who worked trades, and each trade and each guild usually had its own god or goddess. And so when they would have their guild feasts, they would get together and worship their god. If you're trade was doing well, and if people were buying your product and your service, then you gave praise to your God for blessing your business. And if things were going badly and nobody was spending money with you, then you went to your God and made sacrifice to try to get favor. Now at these guild feasts, they would worship their God, they would consume wine in abundance, and usually those gatherings just degenerated into a mess of sexual immorality. What's a Christian worker to do in that kind of environment? What's a Christian who works a trade, who's a member of a guild, who has its own God? What do you do whenever you go to these gatherings? You can't worship the gods with them. 
Because you believe that Christ alone is Lord and that there is no God beside him. Obviously, to refuse to worship the God or goddess of your guild would result in persecution. Maybe you would be expelled from the group. Your business would suffer. You would suffer financially. It would be hard on your family. You may not have enough money to even buy food to eat. So you have to make a very difficult choice. But apparently in Thyatira, there was a woman who claimed to be a prophetess who spread the teaching that it was acceptable to participate in the idolatry and the sexual immorality that was going on. It was probably some form of Gnosticism was prevalent in that day where you had the thought that, well, what really matters is the spiritual. What matters is what happens in the heart. What you do with the flesh doesn't really matter because it's all corrupt anyway. It's the idea that as long as you love the Lord and as long as on the spiritual side of things you're doing okay, it doesn't really matter what you do in the flesh. Go ahead, drink the wine, sacrifice to the idols, commit sexual immorality. Now, Jezebel probably wasn't her real name. Uh, naming your daughter Jezebel would be like naming your son Judas. There aren't that many Jezebels around. I've never met one personally. There aren't many Judases around. I've never met one. And you probably won't. And there's a reason for that, because the name comes with stigma. Jezebel was the wicked wife of King Ahab, or Ahab, who led Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality through the worship of Baal in the Old Testament. If you read about the life of Elijah, she was the one who uh, pestered him, who threatened him, the one uh, whose skin he got under. Because you remember during the worship of Baal, he says, hey, let's have a contest. Go up on the mountain, right? You offer sacrifices to, to Baal and I'll pray to the God of heaven and we'll see which one sends down fire. The prophets of Baal came and they sacrificed and they worshiped and they danced all day long. They prayed, no fire came. Elijah soaks his sacrifice in water and prays to the God of heaven and God sends down fire, proving that Baal was a false god. Jezebel didn't care for that. She sent people out to kill Elijah. Because she hated him. Because he spoke out against her idolatry and sexual immorality. And so with that person in mind, the, the readers would have known exactly what the, they would have understood the reference whenever Jesus refers to this false prophet as Jezebel. The point is that the sins of the day were tolerated. Treated as acceptable, even in the membership of the church. And that's characteristic of corruption in any church, even today. Those who come along and say, well, as long as God has your heart, as long as he knows what's on the inside, it doesn't matter all that much what you do out here. This is acceptable in the world, sexual immorality, idolatry, go for it, it's fine. God knows where your heart is. That's a sign of a corrupt church. And friends, it has to be cut off at the point of compromise, at the first sign of those things. And even before that, when we recognize our love is growing cold for Christ, we must warm those affections and seek him in prayer so we don't get to that point of corruption. Because once you get to that point, it is hard. It is hard to root it out. 
And so you can apply this in the congregation as a whole. If we see sin here, we've got to deal with it. We can't let it go untouched. But we also have to apply this in our own lives individually. Because my sin and your sin might not be visible to everyone else, but you know where you stand between you and God. You know those sins that you're susceptible to. You know those places where you're tempted to compromise and let sin creep in. And it's not going to be long at all before it takes hold of you and it corrupts you. You must repent. And so the characteristic of a corrupt church is simply this, that sin is tolerated. It's not dealt with. The second characteristic is that saints are caused to stumble. Saints are caused to stumble. Look there again at verse 20. He says, You allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. You see, naturally, even some of the true Christians in the church were seduced into believing this false teaching. Even the ones who really loved the Lord and the ones who really wanted to please Him with their lives were drawn in. They slid into that sin because it wasn't dealt with in the congregation. Especially in a church with relatively new Christians or Christians who have not been firmly established in the faith. Friends, listen, allowing, allowing sin to have a place will always lead others astray. Sin has to be dealt with or it will lead others astray. Now, there was probably somebody who stood up and said, well, you know that old Jezebel, you know how she is. Nobody really pays her any mind. And that's the easy thing to say when we see someone in sin. Oh, well, you just know how that person is. You just have to take, take it for what it's worth and ignore her. No. As a church, you are called to deal with sin. That doesn't mean you go around with your magnifying glass hunting up clues trying to find dirt on everybody around you. That misses the point. But when you see sin out in the open, it must be dealt with. It must be confronted. They were led astray by the one who was propagating the sin because of this woman who was giving this false teaching and, and, and probably participating in the sexual immorality herself. She was leading others astray. But all the blame doesn't fall on her for leading others astray. You see, they were also led astray by the Christians who know the truth but won't deal with the sin. Christians who know what's right, Christians who know better but won't deal with the sin they see in front of them. You see, Jesus gave us a pattern for how to do that. Read Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17 sometimes. He gives you a three-step process. It's easy. It's not easy. It's simple. Let me say that. How to deal with sin in the church. He said, if you see your brother or your sister and you think they're at a fault, you know what you do? You call somebody and tell them about how bad they are doing, right? No, no, no. You don't gossip. You don't slander. You don't jump to that. No. He said, if you see someone and you believe they're in a fault, who do you go to? You go to that brother between you and him alone and try to resolve it. That's the first step. Now he says, if, you, if that brother in sin won't listen to you, then you take one or two others. A pastor, a deacon, a trusted Christian friend. And you go to that person with two or three. And you say, hey, listen, we see this sin in your life. It needs to be dealt with. And if they repent, great, you've regained your brother, your sister. 
Praise God, that's where we hope it stops. But then if they still won't listen to the two or three, then you bring it into the church. And if they won't listen to the church as a whole, then he says you put them out and you treat them as an unbeliever. Because the pattern of their lives shows that they're not truly following Christ. Jesus gave us instructions on how to deal with sin. And when we don't, we'll lead other Christians astray every time. Because they see a person living in sin and just assume it's okay for Christians to live that way. So sin is tolerated in a corrupt church. Saints are caused to stumble in a corrupt church. And then third, grace is abused. Grace is abused. Verse 21, he says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. God gave her time to repent. Don't we have a gracious God? Didn't we sing rightly this morning, amazing grace? How sweet the sound. Why is it so sweet? Why is it so amazing? That saved a wretch like me. That's why grace is amazing. I knew someone once who wouldn't sing saved a wretch like me. They always changed it and said that saved someone like me because that person said, well, I'm not a wretch. If you don't believe you're a wretch, grace really isn't all that impressive. I mean, it's not hard for God to like somebody who's likable. The reality is none of us are very likable because we're wretches. We're in sin, yet he's abundant in grace. And even this Jezebel, this person who's leading a church astray, God gave her time to repent. And friends, if you have sin in your life, think of all the time God has given you up to this point. He hasn't wiped you out. He has let you continue to breathe. He lets your heart continue to beat because you have time to repent. You're still above ground. Repent. God gave her time to repent. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the desire of God, that you should repent of your sins and come to Christ. And He's given you time. He gave Jezebel time. But she refused. Romans 2 verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Every day that God has given you breath, every day that he allows your heart to beat, he's giving you time to repent. And every day that passes that you don't repent, you're storing up for yourself more and more wrath for the day of judgment. Oh, friends, don't go on in your sin any longer. Don't go on in your rebellion against God. Repent. Turn to him. He turned his wrath on Jesus when he went to the cross so that you wouldn't have to experience it. 
When Jesus went to the cross and was nailed there, and as he hung and he suffered, God poured out his wrath that was stored up for you on Jesus so that you wouldn't have to experience it. If you would only repent, don't wait any longer. Because Jezebel refused. Truly, God's grace is inexhaustible. Moreover, the law entered, Romans 5.20 says, that sin may abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. But he will not allow us to abuse it. The very next chapter in Romans, Romans 6, he said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? I mean, if God's gracious, I know that he'll forgive me. Can I just go on sinning and ask him to forgive me later? The apostle says, certainly not. God forbid. As your mama used to say, don't even think about it. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? In a corrupt church, sin is tolerated. Saints are caused to stumble. Grace is abused. And then fourthly, judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. Verse 22 and 23, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I'll kill her children with death, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. He will judge the one who promotes sin and those who follow her in it. If you're the one who lives in sin and you bring sin into the church, I promise you, you stand under the judgment of God. But not only you, all who follow you in it. She'll be judged with sickness, he says. Those who sinned with her, with tribulation. And he says her children, he's talking about those who follow her. He says those who followed her will be punished with death. We don't often think of God in this way. We don't often think of Jesus as the one who brings death to sinners. This isn't the only time in scripture we see this. You know the, the communion passage we always read in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul said, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, or they are dead. Even in Corinth, the Apostle Paul could point and say, there's people in your congregation who are sick. There are some who have died because they have sinned. Because they took the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he says the same of Jezebel. And her followers in Revelation 2. He says he judges according to works. Verse, at the end of verse 23, he says, And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, we who love the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, might scratch our heads and say, Why is he judging according to works? Can you be saved by any works that you do? The answer is no. Just want to make sure we're clear there, okay? Saw a couple of heads move. 
You cannot earn God's favor, for by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. We're going to have a baptism here in just a few minutes. Can that baptism wash away sins? No. That's just regular old water that came out of this well. That a couple of guys came out this week and warmed up so we wouldn't be cold. It's probably not even as clean as the water you showered in this morning. It can't wash away sins. No deeds that you can do, no works can deal with your sins. So why does he judge according to your works? Not because works can save, but because our works are the evidence of what's in our hearts. How do we know what's in the heart of a man or a woman? By the deeds they do. In 1 John 2, the apostle says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God has been perfected in him. Now by this we know that we are in him. The works that we do are the overflow of what's in the heart. Can you put on phone, a phony show for everybody? Yeah, but probably not for your whole life. Can you do good works and your heart be corrupt? Yes, but the truth will come out. Here's the conclusion. Loving and laboring churches can be corrupted. But know this. Christ will reward the overcomers. That's the promise at the end of every letter that he gives. He will reward those who overcome. Look, there are two rewards. Verse 24 he says, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. Here's the first reward. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father. So the first reward is this, the gift of sharing in Christ's rule. You see, Jesus will come with his eyes of fire and his feet like brass. He will make his enemies his footstool and he will rule the nations. But he has chosen that those who love him and who live for him will reign with him when he comes again. So you have the gift of sharing in Christ's rule, and then you have the gift of Christ himself. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. What's the morning star? It's just a reference to Jesus himself. In chapter 22, verse 16, at the end of the book, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The greatest gift that Christ could ever give you is himself. Your relationship with him, your loving communion with him, friendship with the one who loved you and died for you so that you could be saved. These are the gifts, the rewards that Christ gives to the overcomers. We will be with him for all of eternity. 
So verse 29, he concludes this way, just as he does in every letter. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So then my question to you is, are you listening to what the Spirit has to say to you today? Has he brought to your mind a sin that's in your life that you've not repented of? Has your love grown cold? Have you let sin begin to creep in and you've started to compromise on your, your morals? And it's getting to the point now where you're becoming corrupt and it's going on further than you ever thought it would go. Friends, the call to you is to repent so that you won't stand under his judgment. Run to Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness in him. There is life because he loves you and he died for you. And if you belong to him and you live for him and your works give evidence that you belong to him, you will overcome. You'll reign with him in his kingdom. And he'll give you the gift of himself to be with him even now in this life, by His Spirit within you, but then for all of eternity in heaven. Friends, we have reason to worship Him. We have reason to keep up our guard and to deal with sin in the church when we see it. Don't be a corrupt church. But may we instead overcome and hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you stand as we pray? Our Father, you are kind. Sometimes your words are hard to hear. Not necessarily hard to understand, but just difficult to swallow. God, I thank you that even in your warnings to us, you are gracious. That you have given us space, you've given us time to repent. That time will not last forever. Behold, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that whatever sin in our midst is undealt with, that you would shine a light on it. That it may not be tolerated, but addressed in the way that you've instructed us in your word. If there's a lost person among us, save their soul. If there's a saint who's let sin creep in, bring them to repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.